This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to dissect what we saw, what we thought, and basically what we heard about the Motul Grand Prix of Japan and round 14 of the MotoGP season. It feels like it's going very quickly. Uh, we had back-to-back races in India and then, of course, Japan. We have one weekend off. I can see David and Neil both smiling at me at that fantastic news before we head into a triple header of Indonesia, Australia and Thailand. One more break and then into another triple header as uh, in Malaysia, Qatar and Valencia. Uh, Japan was eventful, guys. Um, it's a, a race that's often been blighted by poor weather. And the rain certainly picked a, a wise moment to enter the, uh, well, let's say the spectacle this time. I'm Adam Wheeler and I'm from, well, it's a great pleasure to be joined, of course, by Mr. Neil Morrison and Mr. David Emmett. How are we guys as our bodies reverted to European time after having to make the switch this past weekend? Not yet. Almost. Almost. It was about to revert to 100%. And you mentioned the, the kind of insane schedule we have coming up in the next couple of weeks and a, a shiver ran down my spine. So, uh, yeah, not 100% just yet. Yeah, I looked at the I looked at the, 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 the start times for uh, Phillip Island and just fainted. <laughs> I had to, I checked my flight times actually for Phillip Island and I six hour jaunt to Doha, um, a three hour wait and then 13 hours to Melbourne. So it's just nice going to be pretty particularly intense yeah Dave I can see you're thinking why on earth did you do that <laughs> where the podcast is coming to you thanks to rental.com as you heard at the top of the show big thanks to these guys not only are they off-road specialists but they have got a lot of accessories for your street bike so go to rental.com just to check out any kind of additions upgrades or accessories that you might need without further ado guys how do we grade the Grand Prix of Japan Neil, over to you. I mean, overall, marks out of 10. I mean, difficult to say, you know, because I wasn't there. Um, but from what I could see on television, um, it was the racing wasn't scintillating. It was uh, a lot of drama was added due to the the, the last minute arrival of the uh, the rain. Um, first flag to flag race since 2021. So that kind of spiced up affairs. Um, fairly modest attendance. I think just under 40,000 people were, or just over 40,000 people were there on Sunday. Uh, one of the, the smaller attendances we've had so far this year. Um, I'd go for a 7.5. 7.5 that feels particularly generous and interesting that you watched the race on the television did you you know manage to get the frequency dialed in did you fiddle around with the aerial get a good reception for the for the race was that all okay a few boots to the side of the tv um kind of did the job <laughs> fair enough i thought that uh, neil was of the generation who don't even know what a television is that uh, it was all uh, streaming services and um, uh, amazon prime netflix uh, 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 what is it uhuru or whatever it is called zulu i can't remember hulu that's the one i knew that was one of the streaming services there you go my old man credentials have now been officially established well dave continue on the theme of uh, you know remembering stuff from the past tell us your grades from the weekend <laughs> um i'm going to give it a solid 8 out of 10 because i thought An the eight. yes definitely yeah no 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 i mean the uh, sprint race wasn't terrific um but the uh, the i mean i really enjoyed the flag to flag race I, we we had overtaking and stuff um which was very good and it was there was lots of interesting things sort of going on so um yeah and, and as you said normally we don't much get much weather uh, or it, it looked like we were going to get away with a completely dry weekend uh, at Mategi but it was just a sort of right at the last minute right on the last day that the rain came down and it really sort of spiced things up so yes no I, I enjoyed it yeah for drama I'll give it a good seven a hearty seven and also for character um which is something I'll sort of come on to later I think a good solid seven as well but I, I think just the rain really ruined a potentially you know splendid contest so i think i'm going to drag it down to about a six and a half i'm not going to go as lofty as to an eight yeah the rain ruined a, a total jorge martin whitewash 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The rain ruined a complete, uh, yeah, a, a seven second Jorge Martin ball fest. I think um, Brad Binder might beg to differ there, Neil. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's one perspective on it. Um, keep talking, Neil. Tell us about your moment. Well, it's it's hard to know where to look really in the uh, in the MotoGP race. I had, we only had twelve laps in the end. Well, thirteen technically, um, but the race was declared after twelve laps, obviously. Um, and I'm going for Jorge Martins' near crash at turn three um, when he was kind of leading that that second group that had all pitted. Um, I think it was on the third lap. And he so nearly, well, in fact, he did tuck the front, but he managed to just react in time, save it, run off track. And uh, I thought it kind of, um, it spoke of, um, well, Jorge's lightning reflexes. Um, and the fact that it just seems he can do no wrong, really, at the moment, because uh, we saw Brad Binder, another exceptional rider, uh, who had a great result on sat- Saturday, a great weekend up until the, the race on Sunday, um, cr- having a similar incident there and just and crashing. Um, and Martin didn't just run off track. I think he rejoined uh, maybe sixth in that second group. Um, but within three laps, he was leading. Um, so it was a pretty remarkable uh, recovery and pretty remarkable reflexes. And I thought it just spoke kind of of the this sweet moment that he's in. The boy can do no wrong. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that sweet moment in a moment. Um, for for me, the the kind of uh, I don't know how can I say? Well, the moment of the weekend was just watching all those riders peel into pit lane after the first lap of the race of the flag to flag. Um, you immediately thought, wow, you know, uh, some serious traffic. What's going to go wrong? Things did go wrong, of course. Riders picking up penalties for um, misreading or not seeing their pit box markers. Um, Ralph Fernandez in particular was one of uh, somebody who was, um, I, I don't know, he was raging after the race that he was penalized for such a, um, uh, I think he was using bizarre terminology like, you know, people can kill each other on the track and just get a one lap penalty or a one long lap. But then if you miss your pit box, you're also penalized. So I think he he had basically lost the plot. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And not since probably 2021 in Austria when, um, you know, Brad Binder made the decision to stick out and ride slick tires around a wet Red Bull ring. Um, did we sort of see a moment where you kind of think, oh, this is something incredibly different and what could go wrong? And then, of course, as the riders congregated after some impressive acrobatics swapping bikes towards the end of the pit lane, the limiters went off and then they sort of throttled back onto the track. Uh, it was just an unusual sight. And um, yeah, it was, it was kind of thrilling. Dave? Uh, I mean, for me, my moment was uh, just before that, really. Um, Jorge Martin was leading uh, at the the end of the first uh, the the first lap, but he came down to sort of like turn eleven and uh, realised that you know, look, I have to make a decision about going into the pits or not. And what he basically just sort of decided, I've got to do what everyone else does. And let uh, Jack Miller buy and a bunch of other people. And you, there's actually a, a, a fantastic photo by Cormac, our friend Cormac Ryan Meenan, uh, who um, caught the moment where uh, Martin is actually sort of sitting up and looking back to see what everyone else is doing before heading into the pits. And now there's been a lot of sort of or some criticism of Martin for not being the smartest of riders incredibly talented incredibly fast but there were questions about his intelligence but that to me was a really really smart move because you he's fighting for the championship if you're not fighting for the championship then maybe you stay out for another uh, for another lap you you know you might take a chance but this is like okay right I'm not going to think about this uh, I'm going to let someone else make the decision do what they do uh, and then follow so I thought that was just really really smart and it was absolutely my uh, my moment I think that was th- that was sort of you know defined it really yeah, before we move on, just to recap basically what had happened over the weekend. Um, in terms of results, that is, Jorge Martin taking victory in the sprint on Saturday. He's now the sprint king. That's five wins compared to Peko Bagnaya's fourth, who's the next nearest rider in terms of uh, ratcheting up the victories in that particular column. Bagnaya was actually runner-up on the Sunday. Uh, the Italian in part firm actually made a reference to that being his first podium finish in the wet. But I think on the Paddock Note Show, Neil, we decided that he had got that particular information wrong, right? I mean, he's been in the damp. He's he's collected a trophy before. Yeah, he was on the podium in uh, Thailand last year, um, which was in sodden conditions. 
Um, I think this was probably Martin's, well, definitely Martin's best uh, dry uh, wet weather results, sorry, in MotoGP. Um, but yeah, Banyaya had, yeah, I think uh, a, f- a couple of decent rides in the wet before. I wonder if um, that, if he said about the podium, because I remember that that podium in Thailand was where he was basically gifted the podium because uh, Joan Zarco sort of sat behind him and like a good boy and didn't overtake him and let him uh, and gave him the extra points. So I'm sort of wondering if... Um, uh, if in his mind Pekka Benyaya feels he did, he he didn't really you know like get that podium it was gifted to him, or maybe he's just done so many bloody races over the last calendar year, Dave, <laughs> that uh, he's just lost count of where he finished where on what particular day. We can't rule that out. Yeah, these down to the color of the sky and whether it's oozing water or not uh, to differentiate, or maybe not. Um, Mark Marquez was third on the podium. That's his first. Well, top three finish on a Sunday for for a calendar year, um, you know, and I think he recalled it afterwards a romantic podium finish. Uh, can we read much into that very quickly, guys, without going too deep into the whole Mark Marquez saga? Uh, yes. Um, uh, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was romantic because he just told Honda that he's not coming back next year and um, uh, all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, it, also, I, I did love um, uh, Pekka Banyaya's uh, reaction in the press conference to that sort of uh, like uh, bye bye uh, Honda. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It wasn't even the bye bye Honda. The really thing was um, uh, he said the kiss of Valentino when Valentino kissed his um, his Yamaha goodbye at the at Valencia 2010, and that was 100 percent what 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 was happening here. So uh, yeah, that was that was very very funny. Marco Bezzecchi finished fourth ahead of Alessia Spargaro, a pretty decent finish actually um, for the Spaniard. At a time when I think people are correctly asking whether Aprilia have the chops to handle these overseas races, considering how things went in 2022 and some of the little gremlins that have been affecting the team already. Um, in races in India and Japan, but Alesh um, finishing with a, a decent top five. Jack Miller in sixth, and then Augusto Fernandez in seventh. Digia in eighth. Uh, that's equaled his best uh, MotoGP finish. Raul Fernandez in ninth. Um, angry or not, that was a pretty decent top ten for the Spaniard. And then Fabio Quartararo, uh, not even able to muster half a smile for finishing just inside the top ten, and not the winner of the um, the Japanese Championship on this particular occasion. Last year, guys, we watched Fabio, um, bigger pardon, we watched Pekka Bagnaia cut down a 91-point lead to eventually be world champion for Ducati, and now he's had a 66 or 67-point lead, uh, I think sliced all the way down to three by Jorge Martin. So um, how realistic, I know we've asked this question before, but now um, I'm afraid Jorge Martin cannot say anything about expectations around him being a world champion. Like it or not, mate, you are there. Uh, the the spotlight is firmly in your face, and if you drop the ball now, then it's going to perhaps be seen as something as a of a choke. Is that right, Neil? Um, I'm not sure if I would call it a choke just yet. Um, it's not as if he's way out front. Um, but not yet- if he loses it, I mean. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's um, it's it's really hard to call. Um, you know, from a couple of rounds ago, thinking this championship might peter out and 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 sort of be a bit listless and boring by the end, uh, we've suddenly got a real sort of interesting dynamic on our hands, uh, which I really didn't didn't see coming. Um, and for it to have turned around so suddenly in three and a half rounds um, is is really quite surprising and and quite interesting because I think we have two guys, one riding exceptionally well. One who was before his Barcelona crash riding as well as he's ever done, um, and hinted at Mategi that he was getting back to those levels, um, both on the same bike, pretty much in different teams, but on more or less identical packages. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say there was needle shown through the weekend, but, um, one or two moments where there's a little bit of frostiness between the two. Um, I think it's going to be a bit spicier than the, the title fight we saw last year just because they're on the same bikes. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. And yeah, Martin at the moment is just riding this crest of a wave. It seemed like you can throw anything at him currently and he's got an answer for it. I mean, we had obviously the situation in India where he chose the wrong rear tire. His leathers came undone during the race. He was suffering from serious dehydration. Um, he managed to still manage, he still, 
came home in second position despite all those issues. And here, you know, he was in sensational shape in the dry, but you throw a flag to flag race at him, really, really tricky conditions. He nearly crashed, as I just mentioned, in on the third lap and he still wins the race. Um Slightly fortuitously, I think we could say, but still um, another challenge kind of ticked off. And uh, yeah, Banyaya now must really know that he's got, I think he knew already that he had a real fight in his hands, but now he knows that, um, yeah, Martin is, is going to take some serious stopping. Dave, Martin is happy with the bike. He's not crashing. He's fit. He's not injured. Uh, you know, it, it's looking increasingly bad for the rest of the field, isn't it? Because, and also Martin is a bit of a strange guy with us, the media. He can either be quite um amiable and explain you know what's going on with him quite well or he gives us short thrift and you know wants to sort of get on with something else which i guess you could understand really uh, why why field stupid questions most of the day but he was explaining at one point during the weekend in japan that he just feels um not only is he content with the bike but his braking ability he's able to really really make the difference on the lap times with the brakes and he's combining that with some extra kind of maturity and focus in, in the Grand Prix races, whether they be 12 laps or a full distance, to be an unbeatable package. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that where he's making the difference is in acceleration because what I, I think previously um, he was better on acceleration and Banyaya was better in braking, but basically he's improved his braking and so now he can brake as well as uh, as Banyaya and he still has this advantage in acceleration. And in the way, it just looked absolutely astonishing i mean like normally what happens on corner exit is the bike in front of you starts to pull away because they can accelerate earlier um and martin was just drawing level on sort of on exit he was like he was overtaking out of corners and that was just really really impressive he had so much drive there um i think john zarko was really good on uh describing where Martin is at the moment saying, you know, he's in a bubble. Everything he touches works. And when everything touches works, you don't have to worry about things. And Martin said himself, like, I don't have to, you know, they literally roll the bike out of the, um, uh, they get, get it out of the crate. Uh, they sort of top it up with petrol, uh, put some air in the tires. Um, you know, they might change a spring depending on the, on how different the braking is. Uh, and that's it. They, ju they just don't touch it for the rest. And that, gives Martin just extra time to sort his head out, to sort his lines out, to sort his riding out, to improve himself, to find the extra couple of tens that, ever, that, that any rider can find at a racetrack if they have enough time. He's not having to uh, work out whether, you know, he's not got, got two different bikes that he's going back to back on. Is this one a little better, better or, a little, or that one a little bit better? All of his mental energy is, which tyres are we going to race? Um, what's the best way to approach this corner? Um, you know, it's literally sort of you know which way does the track go and what's the and what's the lap record that's uh, that that kind of approach of not even having to think about it just think about racing everything is in place he's also kind of smoothing off the chip on the shoulder after being basically overlooked for an a bastianini last season uh, he has what um, fonzi nieto in his corner gino borsoi as well and this whole satellite team rider could be a world champion thing. I thought, you know, Paolo Ciabatti from sort of, you know, Ducati's senior management um, defined it quite well and underlined the fact that Jorge is paid by Ducati. He has exactly the same bike as Pekka Bagnaia. He has exactly the same access to parts and resources as Pekka Bagnaia. I, you know, so perhaps Martin's deflection that he is not a world championship candidate or expected to deliver the top prize for the Italians is, um, you know, it's a little bit of a weak ploy. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, I think um, Paolo Giabatti was talking to Jack Appleyard on Friday afternoon uh, during uh, practice and um, they were talking about this. Would it be a problem for Ducati if Martin did win the championship, did beat Pecco to the championship? And they said, look, you know, whenever we signed Bastianini to the factory team last year, we said to Jorge that he was going to get the same mechanical support. He was going to get the same uh, support in terms of engineers as uh, as Enea. Um you know, his bike has the same updates as Peko's bike and has been getting those all year. If we didn't want a situation to arise where he would beat our factory rider, then we wouldn't put him in this situation. So he was saying that essentially, you know, let, you know, it's up to the riders to show who's the best one. Um, and you have to say, you know, that's a, that's a great approach. Um, you know, there's no, there's no kind of favoritism there. I know 
back in the day, maybe in superbikes, um, there was a couple of occasions, especially with, was it James Toseland in 2004? Uh, it was a very clear person that Ducati wanted to win the, the World Superbike Championship and it wasn't him. Um, <laughs> but this year, it, it seems that they're, they're, they're perfectly open to, to you know, letting whoever wins uh, win. So um, I think that's that's good. They're obviously in a situation where, you know, it looks good for them either way if the factory guy wins or the satellite guy wins. But um yeah, I think that's a, that's a great thing to see, and um, they'll be fighting, you know, even terms. And if the if they take each other out, then it doesn't matter because Marco Bezzecchi's in third, and I think that's I think that's also like a, a a big factor. There isn't the risk of losing the championship. It's between two Ducatis with a third Ducati in position as a sort of uh, sort of you know rear guard, a sort of rear defender to keep everyone behind um, should they both mess up. So it really also it really does look like there are. The, the championship is going to come down to Martin versus um, uh, the, uh, Martin versus Banyaya with Bezeki maybe get catching up and Binder just losing ground a little bit. How much do you guys actually rate Martin as a rider? Like here's a hypothetical situation, okay? Bezeki and Martin are tied on points in the same sort of situation, ch- chasing Bagnaya. Which rider would you put money on to eventually, you know, do the job out of those two? Just in terms of ability, mentality, racecraft. I, th- I think what we've seen recently, you'd have to say Martin. He's got one year extra experience over Bezeki in the class currently. Um, I think they're pretty, pretty level with regards to with regards to talent. But you know, Martin from his days in Moto Three, it was always clear just how how talented he was. Um, you know, no one in Moto Three really racks up what eighteen pole positions was. It, I think in his his time in that class, or maybe it was twenty. In fact, I don't think anyone had, had scored that many pole positions since Fausto Grassini back in the eighties and early nineties. Um, and the way he won his Moto Three championship in twenty eighteen against Bezeki, uh, that ride at Sepang, I think it was the penultimate race of the year. Like that was really really special. It wasn't quite Mark Marquez at at Estoril in the one two five class back in twenty ten, but it was. It was one of those races where you sat back and said, wow, like this guy really has something quite special. Um, and we saw that as soon as he came into MotoGP in his, his rookie year, how, how impressive he was and how quickly he was able to adapt. So I think he's just a little bit ahead of Bezeki in his development currently. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would say Martin. You, ha- you have to sort of like go with a vibes-based uh, uh, sort of answer with that because it's so very difficult to, to say. Um, I think I think... Um, Neil's points are absolutely spot on but you sort of like feel that there is perhaps a little bit more potential to Bezeki but again I don't know what I'm basing that on it's it's just really it's really difficult they're both they're both certainly exceptional riders um, uh, I I think I would rate Bagnaya above both of them but Martin is just really, really strong. At the moment, Martinez is such an amazing moment that it's really difficult to say how good he's going to be because where where you tell how good a rider is is when they're you know when they're going through a diff- through difficult times. Um, so let's see if he you know if he if he crashes out of in Indonesia or something, loses some points, and how he picks that up again. Well, here's another one for you then. If you're Peko Bagnaya, what kind of weak point do, ident- do you identify with Jorge Martin? I mean, how are you going to try to beat him over the next couple of races? Is there any kind of tactic you can use? Well, I mean, he said after the sprint race that, you know, his tactic was to try to get, you know, get out in front of him, block him and, you know, just try to, um, uh, pardon my language, fuck him up. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, that was basically his tactic. It didn't happen because we had the, you know, we had a wet race where, which was shortened by uh, by 12 laps. So it was it was a completely different sort of, um, uh, it was a completely different deal. So we'll have to wait and see. I think Martin, the jury is still out as to whether he is an exceptional fighter, whether he is excellent in close quarters combat. I think there's been a couple of occasions uh, in his MotoGP career when you could say that maybe he isn't. You think back to Philip Island last year, for example, he held his, his hands up afterwards and said, you know, Martin, oh, sorry, I think it was Mark Marquez in that day, just kind of outfought me. He definitely had the speed to win then. But, um, you know, in terms of just that real close combat, wasn't quite there. Um, I think it was a big step in Germany when he beat Peko in that final lap shootout. Um, but generally, his his wins have been 
like we've seen in the last uh, last couple of races, you know, like uh, Mizano just leading from the start, the sprint race here in Japan. He did have to fight uh, in Mutegi to come through in the wet conditions again, but um, it obviously didn't go the full race distance. So still a little bit of a question mark, I would say, uh, with regards to how he deals with that kind of that kind of situation. Lastly, just on on the Martin subject, uh, aside from having a wank nickname, would him, he actually be like a half decent MotoGP world champion? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like he is, uh, he is quite animated. I was watching the race with my um, uh, with my wife's cousin, and she never watches racing, so she doesn't. Uh, she, you know, she has no interest. I mean, she enjoyed it, but she sort of. She said he looks like a he looks like a manga character. He's got a very expressive face, very characterful face. He's got uh, a lot of. Um, he does have charisma. Um, I think. It, uh, you know, he is sort of like quite. He can be quite loud and brash and brazen and all the rest of it. So yeah, I think he. I think he would be a good world champion, but he would draw attention uh, to it. And also, it's a great story. You know, like even if he is basically riding a factory Ducati, um, but having a satellite rider win the win the world championship is a, is a good story and it's good for the championship. Yeah, and uh, a satellite rider beating the factory guy on the same bike to win the championship, I think, is uh, is pretty. Pretty big, um, you know. And there were times this year when Banyaya was looking like a dominant force in MotoGP currently, and uh, Martin has managed to kind of upset that balance. Well, the dominant force that is this podcast will pause for a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be talking red flags, rain, and more. Renthal Street Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency, from racetrack to daily rider. With over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Plus podcast. We've been talking about one particular Ducati rider a lot so far on this show, but what about another one, the world champion? Uh, Neil Pekka-Bagnai dropped the ball in India. Uh, You know, he basically gifted a lot of points towards Jorge Martin. He was also having a bit of a tough time in Japan on Friday, but then curiously ended the day pretty pleased because he seemed to have solved this breaking rear-breaking issue that he's had. Uh, were you quite impressed by the way that Bagnai has managed to haul things back on track, it's especially at a track where he fell last year and, you know, that was the kind of major blot on his copybook in terms of chasing down Fabio Quattararo? Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, obviously um, he had to take, he didn't take centre stage. Martin very much did that. But I think on the whole, Bagnai's weekend was quite impressive. You know, he third in the sprint and, and second in the in the main race. Um, as you said, I had... He, he, he was looking a bit lost uh, midway through practice on Friday afternoon. Um, but uh, at the end of that day, he said they found a, a late solution. He took a big kind of breath of relief at the end of that day. Um, and okay, he wasn't quite on Martin's level on, on Saturday in the sprint and really struggled to get past uh, Jack Miller uh, for the majority of that uh, of that outing. I think he did uh, pretty well in on Sunday. And, um, you know, there is an argument to make that if the race had gone full distance, uh, had the race, sorry, had the rain not intensified as it did, which led to the red flags coming out, you know, you could say that Banyaya might well have, have won that race uh, or he might well have um, pulled in Martin and, and, and overtaken him. So um, I think he did well. I thought his reaction afterwards was pretty controlled. He didn't seem like he was panicking by any stretch of the imagination. He just said, I'm pretty sure our time will come. Um, he seems to be feeling pretty comfortable on the bike again. Um, so yeah, I thought um, it wasn't a brilliant weekend, but it was it was kind of exactly what was needed after the Indian disaster. Dave, you said that you think Peko's better than Jorge Martin and Marco Bezzecchi. Can you see him pushing on defending the title, even though it's getting a bit like squeaky bum time? Yeah, I mean, I think they did well in uh, fixing the braking problem. I think that was important. Uh, the other thing that I think is, I mean, you saw the difference in strategy between the uh, Banyaya and Martin. Martin really pushed hard to get past everyone and try to lead the race and break uh, break the field. Uh, and then the red flag came. Uh, Banyaya was thinking about his tyres. He was thinking about the second half of the race, but we ended up not having a second half of the race. Uh, and that meant that, you know, we, we didn't get to see what Banyaya could have done um, uh, if he had been saving his tyres better. But um, yeah, that's that's the thing about, about rain races. You, you don't know what's going to happen. That's all lovely, but can you answer my question now? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think uh, I'm really I am enjoying the fact that we have two riders who uh, are, uh, shall we say, not friends, um, have uh, pushing each other to the limit and trying to find each other. Uh, they're having to find ways to beat one another. And that I think is very, very good. And I think I think that Banyaya has the intelligence in the team to beat Martin, but I think it's going to be very close and, and I think that's great. Dave, I know I want to get onto a subject that you enjoy immensely in MotoGP, the rule book. Oh, uh, yes. You know, and the situation around Johan Zarco as well. Was he um, a victim in all of this? Um, what do you make of this 12-lap distance? Should it have been restarted? I think the consensus was, even though some riders were a little frustrated, they wanted another crack at the rain, uh, but then, you know, they kind of followed up those kind of comments and frustrations with that it was the right decision to halt the restart um, after the warm-up lap just because one part of the circuit was heavily flooded while another one seemed to be, another section of the track seemed to be okay. So um, from where you were sitting, what was your kind of take on the whole situation? Yeah, I mean, what I found really interesting is uh, on the MotoGP.com broadcast, they showed that little bit where the riders are chatting in the uh, in the room together before they are taken to the, for the podium ceremony. They're showing sort of bits and pieces of the of the rain, and uh, I think Jorge Martin said they you know they should have red flagged it two uh, uh, two laps earlier. And Mark Marquez said, you know, if, if it had been, you know, if they if they hadn't have red flagged it, then he would have put his hands up to get, to get the thing stopped. Um, but then in the press conference, they were all saying no, it was a perfect decision, it was the right decision uh, to, to red flag it. So I think I think it could have been red flagged a little bit earlier. Um, I think you know maybe t- lap eleven, lap lap ten, because by then there was so much water, especially the end of the straight uh, turn eleven, and then you because you go through the tunnel, and then it was there was sort of standing water on one side of the tunnel, and the tunnel was relatively dry, and then there's more standing water on the other side, which is where we saw uh, Jean Zarco crash, and I, I that was that looks really really sketchy. I mean, to me, they could have red flagged it earlier like I said, um, but it's so difficult to tell. Yeah, I think Alicia Spargro was saying that he felt that maybe should have been red flagged one lap ahead of when it was. Um, But he said the riders have obviously a much better view of conditions than the stewards or the race direction. So it's easy for him to say he didn't seem too upset about it. But I thought it was quite telling that two guys, Miguel Oliveira, actually retired because he couldn't see where he was going. And Juan Mir, I think, was up to seventh, one lap before the red flag came out and then dropped down to about 13th just because he couldn't see anything. And um, it was interesting listening to what Oliveira had to say afterwards, just that, um, yeah, it was it was crazy. The visibility was so bad that he couldn't even see really where his wheels were in front of him. Um, now, obviously, this was partly because the guys uh, started in the dry or, you know, more or less dry with rain falling and you know they hadn't had a chance to kind of prepare their helmets or their visors for kind of full wet conditions so that was one of the issues but it did sound quite sketchy when you listen to someone like Oliveira Um, and the fact that he was in a good position in you know fighting for the top six maybe could have fought for the podium if uh, if things were right he actually decided to to pull out for for safety purposes you know that's that's kind of saying a lot yeah, I mean, the other thing is they didn't have well. They they had sort of enough time to roughly prepare the second bikes to get them sort of like ready for rain. But you know, the the absolute details, for example, you know, they they put uh, a special coating on the on the screen of the bike so that when you're behind the screen, you know, so so it sort of sheds water easily so you can still see uh, the, you could see there was a few bikes where that hadn't been done as well as it might have done as well as you might have hoped and so there was a lot of standing water then and again yeah especially the helmet preparation there were people with dark dark visors there were people without breath guards and stuff because when you saw the riders go out the second time they had their helmets set up very differently they had proper breath you know breath guards to stop the 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 uh, the screen from from fogging up, or that you know their visors from fogging up. They had much clearer visors. Uh, things things really changed a lot. I think I think that caught people out. Um, but you know, then again, if you're if it's if it looks like it's going to start raining on the grid, 
uh, then you and you know you'll have seen looked at the rain radar. Everyone is looking at the rain radar. They know what what might happen. So you've got to be prepared for the for for these situations. Yeah, it seems like such a basic sort of method of preparation, really. But if we remember those fantastic photographs from Argentina, where Alex Rins was actually one-handed along the straight, trying to prise open his visor to get to get rid of some of the mist in effect, it seems quite unreal, really, when you think about the millions that are invested not only into the motorcycles but the development of the safety systems and the suits the riders have, and then not being able to see where you're going is, uh, yeah, a slight handicap, it has to be said. I don't know about you guys. I mean, I was in India, so I was never really going to go to Japan as well. But um, at one point of the weekend, I thought Motegi just seems utterly charming and lovely. Um, It's a Grand Prix with a lot of character as well. The fans have their own, um, you know, kind of polite, conservative enthusiasm towards MotoGP. Uh, You know, we saw lap records tumbling on Friday because of the decent temperatures, the dry conditions. But then... Japan being Japan, it's almost like the UK. It has to throw some sort of spanner in the works when it comes to the climate. It's also the time of year. You know, the, the, this time of year, you do get very heavy rains uh, from time to, from time to time. There are uh, sort of storms developing in the Pacific, which which tend to sort of really hit the Philippines and that's uh, and that area, and then sort of like make their way up the coast and dump a bunch of rain onto Japan. So yeah, you, yeah, you, you always have that. You always have tricky conditions there. Um, a quick question. Are we fans of flag-to-flag formats? I think it was um, Francesco Guidotti, actually, the Rebel KTM team manager, who suggested that the, they maybe should have had a delayed start to the Grand Prix. Um, you know, it allowed riders, it allowed everybody to prep before starting and going straight into a one-lap situation where you had a, a general amount of chaos in the pit lane. Yeah, I think that's maybe a fair point um, because, you know, the the fact that the majority of riders, I think there was maybe five of them that didn't pit after the first lap. Um, and then I think three of them that didn't pit after the first lap pitted after the second. Um, so clearly it would have maybe benefited if, um, if, if they kind of waited five, 10 minutes, uh, just so they could declare a, you know, a full wet race. That would have made a bit more sense in terms of riders being able to prepare, um, themselves a little bit better for the, you know, the, the, the reasons that, that Dave just mentioned with the helmets. Um, and, you know, the kind of the protective clothing and stuff like that that riders wear in the rain. Um, but, you know, the, the, the same situation would have, would have resulted in that the rain would have got so bad at a certain point that, um, the race would have had been red flagged. Um, and we probably wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been able to, to go again. I think one of the things that Fabio Quattararo was saying was that the race started at 3 p.m. local time. And when they know that, um, pretty heavy rain is coming at that time that, uh, might, uh, put the, the full race distance in jeopardy. Maybe there was a case to be made to move everything forward, but then we know how complicated that can be with TV schedules all the way around the world and also for the event itself. So, yeah, but different. also, Neil, it gets, it gets dark. I think it's like sunset was like at 20 past five. So you can't delay things too much. But I mean, your point about moving the race forward was is extra valid in that case. Yeah, but you can't, I mean, like when, well, you have to make the decision about moving the race forward um sort of before the race happens you can't suddenly invent a time machine and uh run it sort of halfway through the the the, the motor 2 race you have to actually decide beforehand i mean obviously they run it a little bit later or an hour later than normal uh well the grand prix they're running uh, an hour later than normal presumably to be able to catch some european fans who are prepared to get up at eight o'clock in the morning rather than seven o'clock um because i bet there there's a massive drop off there uh but um yeah i mean it was i if they had have waited then it would have made things incredibly complicated i mean you know we would have we wouldn't have had half distance so uh the, the, we would have had at least sort of half points um uh and you know like the, uh, they wouldn't have restarted we saw when they t- when they attempted to restart that uh, th- that it was just not possible, um, and in fact, the restart really sort of like I think it complicated everything because it Joan Zarco lost a position or he lost his sixth place because he didn't enter the pit lane correctly. You know, he basically took a shortcut. Yes, t- yeah, turn twelve. Uh, but it, it was literally he was pushed through the uh, uh, through the barriers on the side of the pit lane exit. Um, uh, about five meters ahead of where the 
actual entrance should have been. Uh, now, it's up to a rider to know to know these rules, as arcane and uh, bizarre as they seem. Um, but if he hadn't, if he'd have been sort of entered through that way, then he would have been allowed to restart. He would have been classified because the rule states that um, uh, when a race is red flagged, you have to enter via pit lane back to the pits. It's to stop people from taking all sorts of shortcuts um, uh, through sort of you know the the, the back of the track rounds to, uh, uh, to to get back into pit lane or to if they crash around the other side of the track to be able to be pushed through through the back of the garage and then through into the into the pit lane again again this was extremely sort of uh, unfortunate um but uh yeah those are the unfortunately those are the rules you know like it was it was a very very minor infraction with a with a with a very very major uh impact for for uh, for zarko the last thing I want to talk about related to the Grand Prix involves basically a series of mini questions. Now, um, it was over, I think, three and a half months ago that Mark Marquez was sliding through the gravel at Mugello, making a gesture to the bike of like what just happened. Shortly afterwards, um, he's gesturing towards his RCV, telling it to fuck off um, live on TV um, at the German Grand Prix at Saxon Ring. And pretty much bubbling up since that point, the whole Mark Willie leave Honda debacle, debacle is probably a strange word, um, debate perhaps, has been just rumbling on. It now seems we're getting very, very close to some sort of definitive verdict on what is going to happen in 2024 with, you know, the eight times world champion and the rider with the biggest profile, the biggest paycheck on the grid. But as a little sidebar to that, we've also seen a publication once more on speedweek.com, which we know can act sometimes as the unofficial uh, voice piece for the PR Mobility Group in Austria. And it would seem that Augusto Fernandez has been given the elbow out of the squad in favor of Pedro Acosta with um, Polo Spargaro retaining his role and fulfilling the second year of a two-year contract. And you would assume some sort of uh, maybe mental capacity to the young rookie. Uh, first of all, Mark Marquez, Dave, you've been saying for a while that you know you he you believe he's going to go. He's he's gone. Um, yes. So we were talking about on the show after India that you know Japan was the perfect opportunity for him to formally communicate to HRC after such a long relationship with the factory that he is off. Uh, were there any kind of crumbs or indications or lines in debriefs from the weekend that just kind of hammer this thing home, apart from what we've already talked about in the press conference? Uh, I think um, the fact that Gigi Deligna, uh CEO of Ducati Corse, uh, told Sky Italia that um, uh, Mark Marquez was looking to leave uh, a Honda and ride for Grassini Ducati, I think that was quite a big uh, clue. So, yes, I think there was. Neil, I wouldn't want your opinion on this. What happens now? Does he go to Grissini as a rider? Does he go to Grissini as a team owner? Is this a very short-term solution and he changes to KTM? Or does he go back to HRC in 2025? If you had to place a little bet on what's going to happen, what, what's the most realistic choice in your view? Well, I'm notoriously careful with my money, Ad. Um, so I wouldn't be betting <laughs> on any of those things. Um, just because I pretty much heard rumors from different uh, places um, suggesting that any of them could be possible. Um, the, 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 the sort of the one of the things I did read in the Spanish press um, was that he could be uh, leaving Honda to go to Grassini for one year. Um, with then the option to return to Honda in 2025 when they've managed to fix their bike and make it a bit of a, a more competitive package. And that sort of, that kind of exchange would be for Mark not having to pay a big penalty for getting out of his contract. Clearly, he's still got uh, one year in his contract left. Um, and it's going to be a pretty difficult issue to try and sort that out. There's going to be a lot of wrangling, a lot of talks, a lot of meetings with lawyers to try and understand just how he can get out of out of that HRC deal. And, you know, Delinia in the interview that Dave was talking about with uh, Antonio Baselli of Sky Italia on Sunday night uh, mentioned this, you know, was saying that, um, you know, Mark has decided to leave Honda, but it's a very complicated contract to break um, and it's going to take some time to sort this out. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, it does look like he's, he's, he's definitely on his way to Grassini Ducati. 
we've heard sort of rumors that maybe eventually he'll buy buy out uh, Grassini and become you know the team owner there. But I don't know. Um, I think at the moment we can just just look at the the kind of the near future, which is two thousand and twenty four. It does seem that he's going to be riding there alongside his brother Alex. Beyond that, uh, who knows? No, that's why I asked you for your um, your opinion, basically, because I know there's more chance of Mark inviting Valentino Rossi around for a dinner and to share a bottle of wine than the Morrison wallet being prized open like a hundred-year-old clam. But uh, <laughs> there we go. Dave, um, what happens next? I mean, what kind of announcement comes up first, do you think? Uh, what, what's, what's the next sort of episode in this um, rumbling saga? Uh, the usual course of events in these cases is... Uh, uh, Honda issues a press release saying, uh, uh, thanking Mark for his service and saying, we're going to miss you. And then a couple of hours later, we get another one saying, uh, Mark Marcus is joining Grassini Ducati. Now, I would expect that to, because, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Absolutely, he's going to Grassini Ducati. Um, but like all of my predictions, um, I ex- <laughs> fully expect to be punished for this, but never mind. But, um, you would expect it's going to be between now and uh, now in Indonesia, probably this week, you would think. Um, uh, maybe even next week, but I mean, it would make sense to do it this week, get it over and done with, uh, have some of the excitement die down a little bit. Um, um, and then sort of the, the, from there, then we'll start to see that all of the other places start to fall into place, you know, like the announcement that Zarko will go to take his place in uh, in Repsol. The question of who takes the other LCR bike, you know, um, uh, I think the the story we were reading on Speed Week was that Augusto Fernandez would be offered a um, offered a place in uh, you know as a test rider, uh, a wild card, and also as a substitute rider, uh, and then get a seat on a when KTM do get sort of two more seats for 2025, uh, get one of those seats so we can race again. Also, Digia, you know, it's been interesting that both Augusta Fernandez and Digia have been riding really, really well. Digia had a fantastic weekend this weekend, just really impressive. Um, and you sort of like think that maybe he would fancy a go at the LCR Honda as well. Uh, so, yeah, that will happen first. Uh, you know, the first we'll get the 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 the, the Grassini announcement or the the Honda announcement, and then the Grassini announcement. Uh, one more thing, I wouldn't be surprised to see whatever happens with Grassini. I wouldn't be surprised to see Marquez at least end his career at, uh, at HRC uh, at Honda um, because he's going to you know end up being a. Uh, he's going to end up being a Honda ambassador. He was with Honda for so long that he's going to be, he's going to have an enormous amount of value to Honda as a brand ambassador once he retires. Yeah, well, let's move on to, let's move on to the situation then with um, the Gas Gas uh, Factory Racing Tech 3 team. Uh, Augusto Fernandez being pushed out for Polo Spargaro. Uh, thoughts on that one? Does it seem a little bit harsh? Again, another Moto2 world champion getting one year in MotoGP. Uh, again, it's not been confirmed by either Gas Gas or KTM. I, I, I don't know. At the weekend, he finished. I actually had him down as my winner from the weekend because he took his second best finish in MotoGP and there just seems to be so much talk of him being bumped out. I thought I'd just give him a bit of praise, a bit of merit, <laughs> um, you know, for what he's done so far this season. Uh, but perhaps it's just a case of him losing out to Spargaro and some of his deeper history with the Pure Mobility Group. I mean, Paul, let's not forget, took the first podium for the KTM project. He was with he was with the KTM factory team from the beginning. Uh, I don't think they really blamed him for wanting to take an HRC Repsol Honda seat uh, and fulfill something of a career and life dream. And they took him back willingly into the gas gas setup for this year. So uh, perhaps it's just even just down to that. I mean, you made a, a good point in a chat earlier about, um, you know, maybe he's going to be, maybe Paul is going to be like a mentor to Acosta, um, which would be a much more natural role for him than having, than keeping Augusta Fernandez. Um, 
and then uh, I was chatting to Tani Garali other, and she was like saying, "Look, he was really good. Uh, Paul was really good at helping Bender at, at, at being a mentor to Binder in those in I think Binder's first year in MotoGP and getting him on board. Um, that I think is it has been really quite it's been it's been an important role as well. So." Yeah, I I think I mean from a purely results and sporting point of view, and also from for the future, for the long term future, you would keep Augusto Fernandez because you know Fernandez has been there's there is still more potential for Fernandez. Fernandez is um, he's he's a lovely guy. He's really easy to work with uh, by all accounts. He's a very good ambassador. All the rest of it. Um, there are lots and lots of positives uh, to him. He deserves to keep the ride. But I think if you're looking at the much bigger or, or the immediate political uh, situation where Acosta is your guy for the future and you want to give him the softest possible landing within Tech 3 and make sure that he is uh, you know, guided and looked after, um, got ready to be moved into the factory team in 2025, um, then for sure... Uh, what you do is you keep uh, you keep Aspargaro to help him through that first year, uh, take a little bit of the flack away, you know, create help create the right atmosphere, um, and then sort of move forward. So, yeah, I think that's uh, I, that seems to me to be sort of the most sensible thing to do at the moment. I think the risk is that once again this is the, i think their fourth rider that they've bumped in 3 years because you know Lecco only got 2 years and this was was bumped off and then we had the uh, uh, Remy Gardner Ralph Fernandez fiasco and now we've got Augusto Fernandez coming in for a year and getting the boot at the end it's not making it a very attractive prospect it's not making KTM like KTM's big selling point for young talent was look join us We've got a path from, you know, Red Bull rookies all the way through to MotoGP. And now it's join us. We've got a path all the way through to uh, MotoGP. Well, you get one year and then get and then get the boot. Well, they're still fulfilling that with Pedro Acosta to a degree. But then, you know, I was going to say, Neil, if you're Pitt Byer and Jens Heimbach, what's your strategy with Acosta? Do you just put him into Tech 3? Do you get Paul to mentor him? Do you give him a, a kind of a rudimentary RC16, not say the one that Brad Binder and Jack Miller are going to be developing. You just say, listen, do what you can, take your time, learn as much as you can. And then, you know, in 2025, you move him over to Orange. Um, I think all of those things add apart from, you know, not giving him the, the up-to-date equipment. You give him the the same equipment as as Brad and, and as Jack. I think Pedro is talented enough to be able to to show something fairly early in his MotoGP career. Um and yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the the factory, well, Jack Miller's contract will be up at the end of 2024. Um, you give Pedro 10 races next year, 12 races, and, and to see if he's good enough to then step up to the factory team in 2025. Um, and uh, yeah, try and create a, a sort of a, a, a comfy, cozy environment for him to succeed in Tech 3 next year. Um, just one thing about the kind of decision, you know, if, if it does go to... If it does go to Paul uh, to stay alongside Pedro next year, it just it doesn't quite make sense. This whole dragging this out for you know two months longer than it needed to be, because if we're judging it over the results in the last two months, then you've got to give it to Augusto Fernandez. Um, Paul has had, aside from that great performance in the sprint in Austria, he's crashed his brains out. At Mizano, we had what five crashes in one weekend, and he had another huge crash at the test on the Monday. He's had a tough time of it, and yeah, he scored three points on on Sunday um, in India. But aside from that, he's he's not really been doing that well. It doesn't really make sense to me to drag this whole thing out to create this competition between Augusto and Paul, where it seems to be affecting both of them negatively. Even Acosta was given KTM the hurry up in Japan, saying, "What's going on, guys? Maybe I'm racing in Moto Two next year. I've got no news, and I'm always trying to get news from these guys." And they just say, "Keep waiting." Um, that seems strange to me. Why didn't they just make the decision in August and say, look, we think Paul's going to come back to his best. He's already proved in Austria that he can ride well in uh, you know, in the sprint race here. Let's give it to him. Uh, I think the last month hasn't really done them much favours. Oh, maybe that was what they were expecting. They were, you know, they were expecting him to be able to prove his point and you know show his best and and show that he earned that. But uh, unfortunately, things didn't play out that way. But I agree, they made a mess of it. 
I think it, more than results, which I think you have to be realistic about. I mean, Spargaro didn't even have a single race, um, you know, on the gas gas. Uh, and, you know, they only had preseason testing time. I think more than results, it was just seeing about whether he could come back up to speed again. And like you say, you know, he crashed his brains up, but then also he hasn't been kicked down by that. He's still been able to get up. He's still been able to push limits. And, you know, we're not privy to the inner workings of the Tech 3 team with Paul Charathan there. But I think KTM management obviously seen something that made them think, well, okay, well, Paul is still worth the investment for an extra year. Uh, I think it can only be down to that because, like you say, in terms of results and potential, then Augusto has a really solid case. Anyway, guys, let's move on to our winners from the Japanese Grand Prix. Um, I already mentioned you know, I wanted to give the nod to Augusto Fernandez on this case. Um, Neil, who was your um, particular victor on this occasion? Well, we've talked about Martin quite a lot. We've talked about Banyaya, talked about Mark as well. You had a, a really good weekend. Uh, third great weekend in a row for Mark. But I'm going to go with um, Jamma Masia, the winner in the Moto3 race, um, just because the Honda definitely isn't the bike to be on a Moto3 this year. Um, and uh, Masia has been one of those riders that's flattered to see for, I think, the five full seasons that he's been in Moto3 up until this one. Um, it just seemed that he was going to be one of those guys that has bags and bags and bags of natural talent, but just doesn't quite have that killer's mentality to get the job done right at the end of races and he started to show this year that um he really he does have that because he's on an inferior package but he is uh you know he's pretty much always the top honda and always the top honda by quite a considerable distance we know the leopard bikes are a little bit better than um than the other hondas on the grid um but what we've seen in the last two race weekends is like him stepping up a, a, a kind of another step with his uh with his riding um you know, prior to India, the biggest dry winning margin in Moto3 this year was four tenths of a second. He's won the last two races by over five seconds and then one and a half seconds in Mategi. So um, I have to say, you know, he's finally become the rider that we thought he could have been, or we thought that he would be when he, he stepped into the, the class back in 2017, I think, for the first time as a as full-time rider. Um, it's taken a little bit longer than expected, but it's good to see him, um, him doing it and... I kind of of the guys fighting for the title, I think he can he can get the job done now because he's got more experience than Holgado and Sasaki still hasn't won a race this year and it's just been something lacking in those kind of last lap duels. So yeah, Massey is looking good for the, the Model Three Championship this year. No, we're not tempted to nominate Somkiat Chantra as your winner from the weekend, and especially his dentist, because uh, when he appears in Park Ferme, then that's the showcase in his fine work once more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Chantra was a good shot. He topped every session, led every lap of the race. It was completely dominant, but it was a bit of a snorefest. And I have to admit, I did fall asleep in the last four laps of Mile 2 <laughs> on Sunday. So for that alone, I, uh, I give the nod to Masia. So there we go. Um, people are watching the world feed from the next Grand Prix when Neil's <laughs> commentating. Then um, FP1 of Moto2 might be particularly misinformed. Don't believe everything you hear for the first session, that's for sure. Dave, who was your winner from Japan? Um, well, my winner for, from Japan is Mark Marcus because he had like... He had two good results, really. You know, he had a strong, he had a strong sprint race where he sort of, he could sort of stick with the front runners for a little while before having to give up. Um, he had, you know, ended up on the podium in the wet because he basically he wasn't hampered by the bike. It was his way of demonstrating that, listen, it was the bike, it's the bike, it's not me. Um, plus he got to tell Honda that uh, he was um, off elsewhere for next year. So, I mean, f for me, Mark Marquez, and he looked relieved. He just looked, you know, so much more relaxed than than he had has done for a long while. You sort of like felt that this was something that's been, that he's been banging his head against for a, for a very, very long time. Um one thing about Somkiat Chantra, I'd love to see Somkiat Chantra on the uh, on the Idemitsu bike. I mean, what they what they should do is put uh, Nakagami into the Repsol team to help develop the uh, uh, the bike, and then put Chantra on that Idemitsu bike because I think Chantra would be fantastic in MotoGP. I don't know whether he, uh, like I, I don't know whether his results would sort of live up to it. I think he'd be you know a perfectly good MotoGP rider, but I think he would really really add something to MotoGP. Even a, a team manager as resourceful as Lucio Cecchinello wouldn't have the spare parts budget, Dave. 
to uh, pause <laughs> Song Kia Chantra and his team. Well, listen, like um, Mark Marquez's financial advisor for 2024, we also have a set of losers on this podcast for uh, you know, the Grand Prix of Japan. Um, I'm going to quickly go first with mine. I have to say, I think um, Japanese riders, because Ayagura had nothing for Song Kia Chantra in Moto2. Um, Ayuma Sasaki was disappointed not to be able to win the Grand Prix. Um, in Moto3 for for his particular set of fans. Of course, we know about the situation in MotoGP. So um, a lot of home expectation, a lot of home, um, like I said, enthusiasm for MotoGP and Motegi, but not quite the riders there to deliver the results on this occasion. So there we go. Uh, Dave, who was your abject loser? Uh, My loser was someone who didn't really deserve it, and that's Joan Zarco, who... You know, as I was saying, there are there are rules there. Uh, I mean, the rules are put in place to deal with or to stop people from cheating, basically, to stop people from from really egregious breaches. You know, getting a chance in a red in a red flag race, like completely trashing their bike and then somehow being able to get back to uh, the pit lane and then jump on a second bike and, and and then go off and win the race. Zarco did everything right as far as I was concerned. The only thing that he did did wrong was uh, push his bike into pit lane uh, or into the pit lane entrance a few minutes or a few meters further than he should have done uh, and lost out on a sixth place, lost out on a chance to restart. Um, Yeah, I I think he was very, very hard done by. I mean, rules are the rules. It's a fair cop, but uh, he was very hard done by. And it was another victory chance potentially for Zarko gone because oh, he was. Oh please! Because he was, can we? Oi, oi, no, oi. please! Yeah. Can we stop with the another victory chance for for Joan Zarko? If Joan Zarko was going to win a MotoGP race, he would have won a MotoGP race by by now. He's not going to win a MotoGP race because he signed for Honda. <laughs> <laughs> he was two seconds faster a lap than the riders at, at some points in that race, and he was uh, unfortunately pushed off at the first turn. But yeah. Yeah, I guess you make your own luck, don't you? And uh, he's had plenty of chances before. Exactly. It's not even that he's not fast enough to win a MotoGP race. It's just that whenever there's a chance to win a MotoGP race, something happens to stop him from winning a MotoGP race. And also, Dave, he didn't lose sixth position because he pushed the bike back through the pit lane. He lost it because he fell off his motorcycle. Yeah, but yes, but I mean, like falling off a motorcycle in those conditions is quite forgivable, given that there was basically standing water and all of the riders were complaining of aquaplaning. And in fact, it's worth going and listening to the onboard cameras because you can really, you can actually hear the rear, especially coming onto the front straight, you can hear the rear really spinning up as they, as they go up there. Because, because the aquaplaning, you know, they just couldn't, they, uh, by that point, they were not getting any grip at all. All the Joe and Zarco fans are long gone by now, but um, Neil, tell us your loser from the weekend. <laughs> well, I'm going to stick with the uh, the kind of Gallic theme uh, and go with Fabio Quartararo because it was a pretty ropey weekend for him, for Yamaha generally. Um, in terms of results, you know, Quartararo didn't score any points in the in the sprint. Um, I enjoyed his comments after the sprint in which he said uh, something along the lines of we have no turning, no power, no downforce, nothing. And then if he was asked, you know, are you confident Yamaha can improve this? He said, well, you know, there's no plan. The bike is the same as it was three years ago. Um, so, yeah, he didn't exactly sound entirely optimistic on his chances of returning to the top in 2024. And then we had the interesting uh, addition to the MotoGP grid this weekend, which was Kyle Crutzler wildcarding uh, Yamaha's test rider. And Crutzel was just very interesting each day, um, kind of painting a fuller picture of what is going on within Yamaha and development direction that he believes Yamaha needs to take and how it seems to be really at odds with, uh, with, with what Quattararo wants. You know, Quattararo is asking continuously for no, more power. We need more power. We need an engine with more power. And Crutzel is saying, look, you got an engine with more power this year. And what happened was it be- the M1 became nervous unrideable it lost all of its good points what you need is a a more manageable engine um you know more power isn't exactly what is necessary you need a, a bike that creates mechanical grip something that andrea davizio was saying right the way through last year um and yeah just uh, you know we had our suspicions i think this preseason whether quattro is an exceptional we, we know he's a, a you know his talent is without question he's an exceptional rider one of the best riders in the world. Is he a brilliant test rider, though? Is he a reliable test rider? Um, and I think that is is still something you would you would say there's a question mark over. 
Um, so yeah, it, it does seem that Emma have to kind of come to some real make a difficult uh, decision in the in the weeks to come. Um, you know, whose advice and and kind of direction they follow. And listening to Crossley, you would say you would hope they follow his because it seems a little more uh, correct. If you want to see how important um, uh, drive grip and acceleration is, just watch Jorge Martin during this race because he was just blitzing everyone else because he was getting better drive out of uh, out of the corner. It was as simple as that. So, um, yeah, I, I I agree. I think that it's actually Crutchlow. I, I think Crutchlow is spot on. The the strength of the Yamaha was always drive out of corners uh, and and sort of strength in braking, and they've sacrificed that because um, they've gone on this quest for more power. Yeah, it was a great point about Crutchlow, Neil, and it's something that we talked about at length, actually, in our Paddock Notes shows, which people can find on Patreon. Um, It's where we give updates every day from the Grand Prix circuits. Neil, you're going to be back on the ground in Indonesia um, from the island of Lombok, so it'd be good to speak to you from a different time zone there, and then we'll both be in Australia together, so... We will have um, a little bit more, hopefully, deeper insight than we can offer us on this show in, in forthcoming shows. But otherwise, just check out the the content on Patreon. As always, send us any comments, um, follow us, review us, let us know. Send us any questions as well on Twitter, and we'll try to get them answered. We're going to do the next show next week, previewing the uh, second Grand Prix to take place at the Mandalika Circuit. Until then, thank you ever so much for listening. Thanks to Renthal.com. If you're a brand or a company that want to get involved with the Paddock Pass podcast, then we know it's kind of budget time or it's coming up to the closure of the window for 2024. But if you want to get your the kind of the name of your company out to over 1 million listens every year, then we're happy to talk to you and take your money and deliver first class material on your behalf. So uh, just send us an email or a DM and we'll get on it. Other than that, thank you for listening, guys, and we'll be back next week. episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler music is provided by the libertines all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com